Are you working on something new? No. That is not like you, George. I've nothing to say. You have many things. Well, nothing that's not been said. Said by you, though, I George. do not know where to go. And nor did I. I want to make things that count. Things that I did what I had to do. What am I to do? So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And this afternoon, in his very sunny new studio, uh, out <laughs> out in the, kind of not wilds, but outside Leeds, we have David Price, the writer and the educator. Hello, Dave. Hi. It's really nice to, uh, to have you here in your studio and talking to you about your wonderful book, which uh, uh, is just out, The Power of Us. And um, so we're going to be talking about the book. We're going to be tracking back over your life. We've known each other for a very long time. 30 years or more. <laughs> years. Uh, and, um, and it don't seem a day to you, uh, as the song goes. But it's, um, yeah, so we're going to be talking about the book and about what the book's about. If, in fact, just before we, we start tracking back, just could you just tell us a little about, about The Power of Us and, and in, put it in a nutshell, if you could, what the book is about for you? Okay. So I, I think the the dilemma for anybody who writes a non-fiction book is that somebody wants you to explain the book in like 30 seconds, you know, it's 80,000 words and you get 30 seconds. I've really struggled with the, the previous book to do that. With this one, I found myself saying, I'll tell you what the power of us is. You know when the Mercedes Formula One team got together with University College London and they created a, a, a new breathing uh, continuous machine and they did it in a hundred hours it's that and so it is about that kind of collaborative ingenuity which was already starting to happen but has exploded because of COVID. So yeah and you really had to um, to incorporate you were nearly at the point of finishing the book before Covid struck <laughs> and, and how, how was that? It was weird because I had done what I thought was the final draft and um, you know, given the, the, the nature of the world, I happened to be in Australia, submitted it, and and then uh, the the tour that my wife and I were on suddenly ground to a halt because that's when lockdown started to happen and actually became a challenge just getting home. Mm. Um, uh, but, but on that journey back through, you know, from uh, Sydney, through Dubai, back to Manchester, and a totally empty Manchester airport, which I'd never seen in my life before, I just thought, you know what, this is too big an event not to incorporate in the book. It would have been like, you know, writing a book in 1944 and thinking, oh, maybe I should mention the war, mm. you know. So, so yes, it was, it was a challenge because um, I, I knew that there was a degree of topicality about that, which I didn't want to lose, but it, it meant I effectively rewrote the whole book in three weeks. But at the same time, Covid has accelerated some of the trends and the, the phenomena really that you're investigating in the book. So in a way, it's been kind of a time to get exactly, exactly. You know, you can't you can't say well we can build a hospital in eight days, but we it takes us six months to rewrite the book. No. Yeah. Well, we're going to be coming back to the book and really talking about about it in more depth. But um, first of all, Dave, I mean you've done many things, but at, at, in normal times. 
what does what's the range of work that you do say in a week say in a month a year well the work that I was doing you know before all this happened um, which of course I'm like everybody else like yourself Peter you know our world's been kind of turned upside down a working life um, and, and and you know let's keep it in perspective that's not the most important thing here but but my typical uh, month there is no typical week when you're a freelancer would have been you know a mixture of training teachers um, which I still get a huge kick out of um, publicly speaking um, doing some writing and a little bit of consulting so it is a kind of portfolio career and I've been doing this now I used to have a proper job but but that was a long time ago that was uh, 2001 so the kind of things that I talk about about the portfolio career in the future is kind of what I'm living now absolutely well let's track back a bit when I met you you were a community musician yeah. uh, at the Abraham Moss Centre in Manchester but you started out as a, a civil servant. So just tell us a bit how, about how all this began and your kind of journey to this point. Okay, I'll try and give you the, the brief version of it because it's a very long story. But yeah, I mean, essentially, um, you know, I, I grew up in Jarrow in a very depressed part of the Northeast. And incredibly, when you think about it now, in the mid 70s, you, it wasn't a question of whether you could find a job it was which job did you want to do there was pretty much full employment it's something that we we may never ever see again sadly but but although there was full employment you really had three options if you lived in the northeast one was you know it, you could go down the shipyards the other was you could go down the mines no way was it going to do either of those or the third thing was you could get an office job and the, the benefits agency um, of the civil service was based in Newcastle I, I worked in this it was a, this kind of Kafka-esque huge it employed 12,000 people still still has a reputation for the longest corridor in the world it was half a mile long and, and we all were like these little rabbits working in our hutches um, and I found it soul-destroying. And I was also terrible at it. I was really bad at it. So then I became a musician. <laughs> you know, it was a crazy thing to do. But, but the, the day that the kind of the dam broke for me was when I was... Every two weeks, my line manager would bring together all the other staff in the office and they'd take the pile of work that I hadn't gotten around to finishing and then they'd share it out between them. And I couldn't take the humiliation any longer. And I stood up one day and I said to him... Um, just to let you know I'm leaving uh, from next week and and he looked at me and he said but what about your pension and I looked back at him and I said I'm 17 year old what, you know what and then he said so what are you going to do and I said I'm going to become a professional musician and and on the way back home on the bus going back to Jarrow I thought what the hell do I tell my parents and I have no plan I have zero plan as to how to become a professional musician. I just thought, better give it a go now, because if I'll only regret it if I if I don't give it a crack. So I did that, and and it worked out. You know, I never made uh, any money, um, but but travelled around a lot and worked with all kinds of really fantastic musicians. Loved loved the lifestyle, um, but there comes a point where I think you just kind of think, mm, not sure if this is a job for a grown up anymore. 
Um, and the bands that I used to play and they used to say to me, you're a bit like Bamba Gascoigne. And I said, what do you mean Bamba Gascoigne? said, well, you're always reading that Guardian newspaper. And I thought, yeah, maybe there is something else. And a friend of mine said, did you ever think of going to college? And I was 28, 29 at the time. And I hadn't, truth, truth be told. Um, but I ended up on a course, any course would have done, to be honest. It happened to be a course with a kind of arts in the community basis. And, and and I loved it. I loved the whole idea of the the mix between academic theory, you know, understanding how culture happens, understanding how communities are built, but then being able to apply that to your art form, for me, was just fantastic. And, and I was one of those really lucky people. On the day I graduated, a job appeared in The Guardian, and... A friend of mine used to say, you know those jobs, the arts jobs in the garden, they don't really exist. It's just somebody playing a really cruel trick. Because no, no one he knew ever got a job. And, and I did. And it was with an organisation called Community Arts Workshop in North Manchester. And, and, and that, that was the start of it, really. Um, and it was very, you know, the reality, it's fine to talk about that on a, on a degree course, about how you're liberating people and you're somehow bringing their, their life into some sort of you know uh, social activism but the reality was uh, you know, it, people people essentially one day i was doing a workshop at the place that, that you came to and i remember the day vividly that i first met you because i thought he should be doing my job what is he doing being a participant but but the other participants were kind of going you know we're not interested in your kind of political half-baked political theory we just want to come here because it's better than watching curry and that to me was a real wake-up call but I loved it and 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 so that was how we came to meet absolutely and and you know I was uh, a victim of your of your, <laughs> of your of your facilitation because I brought in a song which I don't think anybody else has ever heard and and uh, you were very encouraging and and oh I God, yeah and I, I learned you know I, I learned how important that is actually just a, an encouraging word uh, so um, can I just say though it was through gritted teeth because <laughs> although I was encouraging you I thought I hate this guy he's written a song that I could never write <laughs> well, that's very nice to hear after all these years <laughs> um, so what happened then I mean because you you were you became involved with with Liverpool uh, yeah uh, with Lipper tell us about that yeah so I I uh, you know, it's like a potted history of socialism in, in the UK, I guess, because uh, Abraham Mosenda um, effectively suffered as a result of the poll tax, which then led to all the council closures um, and and people like me. I mean, it was a unique time. You, you met the people who were involved. You know, we had a writer in residence. We had a youth theatre in residence. We had a director in residence. It was remarkable. And Dave Moodry, the guy who set it all up, is is now at home and and still doing amazing things i think for manchester culture. home as in the the art center yes manchester. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, you know when that all came to an end i i really didn't know what to do um my heart was completely in those communities and i felt uh, that i'd somehow betrayed them that i i you know somehow we should be fighting this and then, um, because we were based in a further education college, um, my line manager said to me, you know, I think all the colleges were, were merging, uh, again, as a result of the cuts. And so what were then 13 further education colleges in Manchester became four. 
and 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 he said to me there's a job going as a senior lecturer and in my naivety this shows how little i knew about education i said what's a senior lecturer and he said you'll pick it up and i went for the job and i got it and it was like a baptism of fire because you know people were being made redundant it was and and i and there was me trying to build the performing arts and there was zero demand at that time but i knew in a place like manchester there were tons of young people out there who just needed the right kinds of courses to go on what they were being offered was A-levels when they weren't interested in A-levels the ones who sound technology or you know all kinds of stuff so we we very quickly in in the face of what was a you know crisis to, to keep people in in a job we turned from having six students in the first week to at the end of the first year we had 400 at the end we had 800 and then it just kept growing it became the largest department in city college manchester so that then led to um uh, my involvement in uh, the liverpool institute for performing arts which um was again one of those jobs that occasionally in your life you see a job and you just think that's that's me and and this job was advertised as a director of learning to help establish the initial curriculum for this school which you know was paul mccartney's old school paul mccartney was essentially funding it he was putting up the money to make it happen and and it had to be a new tertiary college which had never been done before that was the only way we got the money we had to do something that was completely different and at the time it was really radical because we created this program which recognized that the the industry the performing arts industry needed the the kind of triple and quadruple threats you know it needed people who could act but could sing and and were musicians or designers and so we created this multidisciplinary environment it was like a hothouse where people came together and did all sorts of amazing work you know and it's still going strong and and I'm very happy to see it but there came a point around about 2000 when I thought yeah I need to do something different now and and so I went right back to my roots I became a freelancer you know and I would I would physically put the guitar in the back of the car and then drive off and 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 do a job you, well, you didn't become a musician again no no, no. But, but but although I was running some music workshops mm. in the early days and then I found that um there was a there was part of me that really was was hooked on the idea of innovation and how that happens so i started doing some work with the paul hamlin foundation which was a charitable trust still is a charitable trust very heavily in, in, involved in the arts and the first thing that i did was i led a national project around music education perhaps because that was you know the thing i knew best at that time um and it was a very radical approach to teaching music in schools and and you know i'll be honest it was it was based on my experience as a musician because i always had two lives i had i had my musical life outside of school when i was in bands and then i had my musical life in school which at that time was singing you know traditional english folk songs which i had zero interest in so i thought how can we make school you know a, a bit more cool and and how can we create uh, an environment in education where young people will come together and they'll form bands and they have the experiences that i'd had all those years ago and it worked and it, it worked spectacularly well it's it's all around the world now as a as a an approach to to music education but that then led to um a broader approach which is how do we um how do we bring more innovation to the education sector 
because it's it's a very strange place to be in education it seems to me uh, when you're interested in innovation uh, if you were running you know a, a, a high-tech startup the idea of trying something not knowing if it would work would be you know it's just like how it works mm. that's that's what you do as soon as you try to do something new in education people will say oh so you're going to use our kids as guinea pigs mm. and and that is what makes the change in education so incrementally slow mm. and somehow we've got to get beyond that because the the reality is uh, and I've been doing this for 15 years now advocating you know more innovation in education the people who benefit most from it are the students and they know they know that not everything works but 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 they're being they're being part of that experiment mm. rather than uh, uh, a program which has been foisted upon them and I think that's you know kind of makes the connection with the book which is that we have to look at user innovation in in all spheres of life and that's one of the great things about the book by the way of the power of us in your new book I think there are so many stories in there so many resources really uh, references to projects that are ongoing and that are happening at the moment which is and, and they're generally they're genuinely inspiring to read mm -hmm. Um, now you've 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 obviously mentored many people in your working life, and I'm sure there are many people around the world who could cite your influence on them. Have you has there been anybody for you who has had that kind of impact upon your work and your thinking? Oh gosh, there's been tons of people, and and you know I could talk for hours about that, but I, I'll just give you two um, uh, by way of example. Um, because you know my cousin Alan Price was in the group called the Animals, who in the sixties had a hit with House of the Rising Sun, and um, there was one night where Alan, who was you know then at the peak of his career, um, you know number one in the U.S. and the U.K. and and tragically his mother died, came up for the funeral, and he came around to my house and my mother did the you know, cringe-making thing, we're going, go on, David, play the piano for your Alan. And, and I played some horrible, you know, attempt at reading music, which I could never do. Still to this day, I'm pretty appalling at, at reading music. And I, I played it, and he sat and listened to it and said, well, yeah, it's very nice, but did you ever think that you could make music without reading the notes? And I hadn't. It, it had never occurred to me. And you know, to to fast forward, the the project I just talked about, we did a lot of research around that, and still to this day, you know, kids who used to watch Top of the Pops is all, you know, it's no longer around. But but kids who see successful artists think that they had to be trained in order to do it. And over the course of that next two hours, Alan just sat down with me and showed me some of the basics about chord structures and and how you use your ears to make music and. From that moment on, my life changed, and and I suddenly realised, this is what I can do. I'm good at this. I I you know I have good ears. I knew that I had good ears, and and so that was that was propelling. Just going to ask you, mm. what at what point in the animal's career was was this? You know, you're sitting down at the piano with Alan Price. Uh, well, it was it was around about sixty six. House of the Rising Sun was was number one. Um, and and but 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 he knew that the animals were was coming to an end. And the interesting part about it was that from that moment, I I didn't actually have contact with my cousin Alan for maybe twelve, thirteen years. 
and by then I was a musician and he was in the BBC studio at Top of the Pops and someone walked up to him and said I own your cousin and and I think it took him a few minutes it was like a double take and he was thinking I have a cousin oh yes I do have a cousin and he said what do you mean and she said I've, I've got the publishing rights to all the songs and he then said okay I need to make contact and he did he made contact with me he listened to what we were doing and then he said let me work with you and and it, I'm not pretending it was a it was a trouble-free relationship you know we were family and and we used to argue about things but but Alan put me on a tour I mean this is ridiculous to think that I had these kind of experiences at the age <laughs> of 21 we toured the UK as as a support act I was playing in this little folk duo there was just me and a friend but he said I've got a 23 piece orchestra and I've got an arranger who can take your songs and these are some of the finest jazz musicians in the country I mean legends all of them and for uh, what was it three months we were on a bus around the UK doing concerts and we had a 23 piece orchestra I mean it was just bizarre but it was one of those amazing experiences and and then you know Alan helped us we eventually got a record deal and that all came to an end and it's another ridiculous story because Sharon Osborne who was married to Ozzy Osborne of course we, we all know about Sharon but she was uh, looking after a record company called Jet Records that I had signed with and um, she'd been over in LA and she came back and she discovered that a ton, ton of bands had been signed and she just did a cold-hearted thing which at the time I hated her for but now I, I recognize it was absolutely the right thing to do she looked at the sales figures for albums and she just said get rid get rid get rid keep get rid get rid get rid and we were the ones that, that she got rid of so I was kind of sacked from the music business by Sharon Osborne and I don't hold it against her at all um, it was it was the right thing to do well It'd be interesting. An alternative life would have been if she hadn't sacked <laughs> But, you know, she did. In terms of, in terms of, I'm going to have a piece of music in a moment, um, which you've chosen. Uh, but, yeah, briefly, any other, particularly in the education kind of uh, world, who was important to you? Yeah. Um, when, I, when we were setting up the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, um, because it was this interdisciplinary programme that nobody had ever done before, and we were aligned with John Moore's university, they were the validating university. So we had to have external examiners and we needed an external examiner for music, for drama. But we had to have someone who looked at the whole piece, who was a bit of a polymath. And I knew straight away that I wanted Ken Robinson, he wasn't Sir Ken Robinson then. Um, I knew that he was the only person who could really do this job properly. Um, and And he was... He was just a fantastic mentor to me. Um, we became really good friends. And in fact, when I then subsequently left and became freelance, he got my first job. Well, he got me several jobs, actually. Um, and, and at that point, he was, you know, his TED Talk had been the most viewed ever. He was, he led the, the, the government inquiry into creativity. Um, and he didn't really need to be spending any time with me. But, but he did and, uh, and then the bizarre thing was when I was writing my first book um, I was at Heathrow Airport I just uh, was going out to Australia he, he was flying in from LA where, where he lived uh, at the, for the latter years of his life and um, 
and he said to me, um, we, we actually were on the same shuttle bus. It was bizarre. And he went, oh, well, didn't expect to see you here. What, what are you doing? I said, I'm going out to Australia. And he said, what are you doing then? And I said, well, we're thinking about finding out if I've got a book inside me. And he looked at me and he said, I think you've got more than one book in you. And it's strange how these things happen. I was in Australia and I was having far too good a time and the book wasn't really coming along. I had a mountain of research. I hadn't actually written a single word. And then out of the blue, I got this email from Sir Ken just saying, don't leave it too late until you start writing. And I thought, is there some CCTV in this room? How does he know that I'm doing this? But but he's been like that. He's been like that as long as I've known him. And of course, he's recently died of, of, of cancer. And it's a, it's a tragedy. But he is one of those people that you are lucky enough to meet because... You, it's hard to find anyone who's got a, a bad word for, for Ken. And he, and he was a mentor to me, but to thousands and thousands of other people all around the world. Um, you know, if I could be half the man he was, I'd, I'd be happy. Okay, thanks, Dave. And we'll, let, let's um, have a break for some music at this point. So you've chosen a piece that for you, yeah, is, is special. So so tell us about the Sondheim song. Well, it goes back to, to when we first met because we we met at a time that I was uh, attempting to do this ridiculously collaborative, large-scale community project. Um, and we, we didn't really know what we wanted to do, but, but we thought we should inspire the people that we were working with. So we hired a bus and we went down to London and we saw a, a musical called Sunday in the Park with George by Stephen Sondheim. And it's, it's an... In- incredible musical it's still probably my favorite work of art it reduces me to tears every single time i hear it but we saw it at the national theater and that in itself was was interesting because we had people on that bus who who had never even been to london let alone to the national theater and i thought why the hell shouldn't they they get to experience this but but there was a song which to me uh, came to the heart of not just the point that i was at then which was, you know, we'd had a previously successful show and I thought it was the classic second album syndrome, you know. Um, when you're in a band, you've used up all your good songs and then the second album comes <laughs> along and you think, oh God, I've got nothing left to say. What on earth do I do? And this song is the, the moment when George Surratt, the, the pointless artist, is, is thinking, I've, I've not got anything to say. And he was paralyzed by, by fear, really. Um, and and it, it had it had an inspiration then because it made me think no just do it when when she sings everything you do let it come from you then it will be new it's so simple as a lyric but it is so profound because the thing that makes us original is is being ourselves through uh, our art uh, and so I did that, and that's also held through, you know, I, I, I keep going back to that song when I had to write the second book. I thought, what on earth do I want to say? Go back to that song. Yes, just move on. Just do it. Just get the words out there. Other people will make the decision if it's any good or not. You don't have to be your own critic. Other people will do that. So that's, that's and, and Stephen Sondheim is God, let's be honest. I've nothing to say. You have many things. Well, nothing that's not been said. Said by you, though, I George. do not know where to go. And nor did I. I want to make things that count. Things that I did what I had to do. 
Something of my own. Move on. Move on. Stop worrying if your vision is new. Let others make that decision. They usually do. So that was Move On, uh, composed by Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, the godlike Stephen <laughs> Sondheim uh, for Sunday in the Park, which I saw that production as well in the National yeah. Theatre. Amazing. It was wonderful stuff. Um, so we're talking to David Price, Dave Price, the, the writer and educator about Power of Us, which is his new book. So let's come to the book um, uh, and the power of us. What do you, you obviously feel that it's the right book for the right moment. Um, what do you hope really that people will take from it if they can take, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a very complex book. It's mm -hmm. about very complex things, but you, it, it's also 
it's it's very uh, it has a very urgent mm. message about it. What 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 is it for you? Well, I think there's a there's a number of levels um, to that. Which first of all, I think people need to be made aware of the way the world's changed. You know, I talk in the book about how we it was a revolution when social media happened and we started to share knowledge. Then we started to share possessions through the sharing economy. You know. Everything from our houses to our cars to our parking spaces, you name it, we, we shared it. I think we're in this third phase now, which is sharing what we make. And it's not just me who said this. Mark Carney, who was the former governor of the Bank of England, he talked about a thing called the artisanal economy. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful concept. And anybody who's been on Etsy or Patreon or those kind of websites will know immediately what I mean. We are we now have the ability to make things um, individually or collectively and reach a global audience and that's never been possible before mm -hmm. so so that was one thing but the second thing was I think we are we're missing a trick in terms of innovation and I, I used to get asked to, to, to work with organizations uh, and they'd say things like our people aren't very creative can, can you come in and just help them be a bit more innovative and you know, yeah, sure. You'll go in, and you, 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 Peter. You do this far better than I do. You go in and do a workshop about new ideas, and by the end of the day, the the wall is filled with post-it notes, and you've got a million new ideas. And I would say to these people, at the end, who'd hired me, I'd say, "There's nothing wrong with your people. They are they are in, incredibly creative." I said, "What's wrong is that you haven't built a culture that allows that creativity to flourish." and allows the, that ingenuity and I use the word ingenuity in the book because I think it's 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 better than innovation because you can you can make something for which there's no need you know you can create a bit of tech uh, I'm a sucker for that for buying something that I thought I never really needed that but I ended up buying it but but ingenuity because it comes from the the Latin uh, root for engineering is about solving problems and so I just thought we, we need to focus on how we build the culture. And I talk in the book about, you know, there's a different mindset which we can look at people, you know, the inventors in sheds, the people who get together, the people who are activists now, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, Me Too, you name them. They are self-organizing in ways that are astonishing. And we need to learn from that because I think what happens in most organizations is you start off many organizations start off by people you know who have created something whether it's a new service a product or a campaign but as it grows they shift from what I call the user mindset to what I call the producer mindset and I'm not saying there's a value difference between the two you need both but but what tends to happen in organizations is that the user mindset, what, what your, your people are doing and wanting to make, bear in mind, 50% of all mobile banking inventions were created by users, not the banks. Mm. And that's just one example. There are millions of examples of that. So, so to, to not tap into that ingenuity of your users seems to me to be a criminal waste. It is a very. It's a really hopeful book. It's a very optimistic book. It's a very. Uh, it's a very inspiring book, actually. But 
you're talking about sharing and you're talking about sharing ingenuity and ideas but we seem to be in a world at the moment which some people would look at and go it's it's polarized it's sort of you know one percent of of, of, of the population of the world uh, own 40% of the resources, etc. There doesn't seem to be a lot of sharing going on. Mm. I mean, it's so, uh, and we, how does that square with your, yeah. with your optimism? That's a really good question. And, you know, in, in the early part of the book, I, I talk about the, the huge, it's hard to underestimate the kind of seismic changes that we've seen in the past five years, you know, whether it was Donald Trump being elected, which nobody saw, whether it was Brexit, which frankly nobody expected, um, or COVID, of course. These things, these black swan events, as they're often termed, yeah. are happening with increasing regularity. Um, so so we, we didn't expect that, but I think um, we, we also can't be enslaved to it because it feels to me like there's been a kind of learned helplessness. When Donald Trump stood up and said, only I can fix this in 2016. Mm. I think that was very reassuring to people. Mm. But, yeah, but, but, but it's not the reality. So if you want to flip that over to the, the other side of the coin, you know, we're seeing uh, community pubs in the UK, community libraries closing down, but we're also seeing people getting together to say, we could run this, we could keep this going, we could keep the pub going, let's let's run the library. And that's just a tiny little example, you know, on the, the bigger scale through COVID, and of course, COVID is the thing that has more than anything has really, you know, accelerated these changes, is when a thousand Facebook, Facebook self-help groups came together in the first week of lockdown, to look after the local communities, to uh, sew scrubs for medical workers, to 3D print um, face shields. You know, it was an incredible mobilization. And, and to me, that is evidence that the power of us is there. It perhaps may be a little bit latent, but it's still there. And what my book is trying to do, go back to your original question, is to say, so what do we have to do? to get people to the point where they can they can actually take more control, that we see people-powered innovation as a daily occurrence and not something which which needs a pandemic to, to spark it. What um yeah what what is great about the book is that you do provide very very solid examples of fantastic stuff happening which I wouldn't have known about had I not read the book I mean you you talk about the book Flatpack Democracy yeah. by Peter Mc, is it McFadden yes in uh, who's council leader of Froome mm. and he's written a book about local democracy and what they're doing there yeah. but it's also about the you know the different mayors of is it Medellin yeah Medellin yes Medellin in and, and how they turned that from being the murder capital of the world into the the place of social enterprise uh, in the world which is astonishing Busy. But they did it through the people who lived there. Well, extraordinary, and I wouldn't have known about those things had I not read the book. And I'm, you know, these are the, those are references I really want to follow up. Um, and what I, what I was really interested in, you talk about entre entrepreneurship, and you want a quote from the book. A belief is 
a belief in entrepreneurship is a way of making the world a better place. And I think within the arts, certainly, mm. entrepreneurship is a bit of a dirty word, actually. Mm. We don't do that. We rely on kind of public funding and we get our subsidy. I mean, with this sort of passivity, I would say, although somebody might challenge that. But um, so, yeah, I was really reassured. <laughs> but you've had quite a lot to do with business in the past. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's... Uh, and what do you mean? Uh, yeah, how, how would you define entrepreneurship? I, I think there is a, a lazy interpretation of entrepreneurship, which is about making money and, and having a new idea that nobody's ever thought about before. The reality is that there's very few new ideas. It, there, there are always improvements on, on previous ideas. But the other reality is that what we're seeing now, which I think is fascinating, is that there are a whole bunch of organizations and some of them I cite in the book people like Patagonia who say it isn't incompatible to be able to run a commercial business and as they are doing to prosecute Donald Trump because he's trying to close down national parks so we've we've gone from the the role of corporations in being um, people who used to be just there for shareholder value those kinds of organizations are are declining and and we saw this really vividly with black lives matter if as an organization if as a corporation and we we tend not to see this as much in the uk but certainly in america we saw this graphically everybody suddenly had to have a position on black lives matter they had to take a stand and some ceos felt deeply uncomfortable about that it wasn't what they thought their job was for but the reality is now, with Gen Z or whatever letter of the alphabet we're up to now with young people, is that they do not buy products from people whose views they do not subscribe to. So it is, it's not just a social imperative to make the world a better place, it's actually a commercial imperative. If, if you want to exist as a business, you have to be about social change. And, and, and that's new. And it seems to me it's, it's thrilling, it's unsettling for a lot of people, but it's also, I think, where the, the, the impact of the tech and the knowledge economy has, has kind of led the way in this, because they were the, the 30-somethings who actually cared for, for the environment. And, you know. mm -hmm. and I know it, it's easy to, to, to say, yeah, but the Google and the Facebooks of this world are just huge corporations. But I think the long tail of that wave leads to people now, and I feature them in the book, who are saying we could apply startup culture, that idea that you know the world is, is important and sustainability matters, but we can apply that to education. And we're now seeing a whole generation of young entrepreneurs who are now building schools that are different to anything we've ever seen before. Well, I think that is I mean, that is the resounding uh, um, message from the book, if you like, is a faith in young people. And I think through the, the examples you give from education, um, but also, as you say, the sort of more business end of things and companies that have a very, very ethical centre, I, th I think that's really, really encouraging. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th I, I applaud that in the book and it's mm. what, I, what I found very moving about the book, actually. And, you know, I didn't want to shy away from that. I, I could have just done a book which was about, you know, social cooperatives, that kind of thing. But it, it struck me that we, we need people to understand that a company like WD40, you know, which makes the 
the can of oil that's under everybody's sink is actually being driven by a social purpose which is to make you know meaningful memories and to make the world a better place and they're being led by someone who frankly Gary Ridge the CEO of WD40 is is one of the finest educators I've ever met in my life and we need to bridge this gap between those that that you know social world and the commercial world absolutely and you talk very very eloquently as well about uh, about the function of work and the value of work in the in the true sense in fact you you you, you quote Studs Terkel I'm going to quote him here actually work um, is a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread for recognition as well as cash for astonishment rather than torpor yeah. I think that's absolutely it's brilliant isn't it? totally brilliant but um, but finally because we can't go on forever sadly and it's very hot in this room <laughs> <laughs> sorry it's all right it's an indian summer <laughs> <laughs> um tell us about life california yeah life california she she is an example and and I, I she is a real person she is there is a person called life california and i first met her when she was eight year old and we went to some amazing schools in san diego and they have these things that they call school ambassadors and when when you have visitors these people young people get out of the classroom and they give you a tour and they talk about the school and I was completely blown away at the articulacy of this young woman she was eight year old um, but also I said to her uh, and bear in mind she's an African-American um, her father changed his name by deed to California he was a naval uh, uh, serviceman and, and he was so grateful to what California had given him when he arrived in America. And then when, when his daughter was born, he just wanted to call her life. And when you meet her, you see why. But, but life what absolutely articulated, I think, what the future needed to be. Uh, and in one so young, I was just completely blown away. And then I said to her, so life, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be president. And I said, of what? And she said, the United States. And she was eight year old. And she's now 15 year old. And she's kept that belief. And, you know, she looks at people like Kamala Harris, who's now, you know, being elected as Joe Biden's running mate. And, and it gives her great inspiration. She thinks, that's a woman who looks like me. And she can do it. But what's fascinating about life is that she's not trying to be president for the fame. She's trying to be president because she wants to change the world. And so along the way, she's involved in you know, anti-racist groups, uh, advocacy around that. She's also involved in anti-gun control. Uh, sorry, not anti-gun in, in control initiatives. And she's a highly um, politicised and social active uh, young person of whom I have met thousands. I mean, literally thousands in the past three years of researching this book. And so when people say to me, you know, how do we put the world back together again after COVID? And it is a genuine question. I say, we have got the people who can do that. They are young people, the like of which, you know, what was I doing when I was eight year old? I was just thinking about, you know, where my next suite was coming from. Uh, life isn't alone. I met Erin Manuel, who was was organising relief for the victims of the Haiti earthquake when she was nine year old, and and these kids are are just everywhere. It used to be that they were the exceptions, but what's happened 
is that networks have sprung up, global networks, and people aren't really aware of this. These young people are communicating globally. They are activating and mobilising in a way that we were, our generation could never have done. And, you know, you could say this is kind of unsettling. Why aren't they just at school? But it seems to me that it's thrilling because they are saying, despite the kind of hand that they've been dealt by, baby boomers like myself, let's face it, we had the party, they've got the hangover, they're the ones who are probably going to struggle to have a pension, a house of their own, and yet they're completely free of, of, um, of, of bitterness about that situation, the hand that they've been dealt. And, and I have to say, and this is probably a contentious thing on which to end, but thank God that they aren't being affected by COVID because we're going to need these young people. In the next 20 or 30 years, we've got climate change, that hasn't gone away. We've got to find solutions to mass migration, that's only going to get worse. There are so many social challenges that the world is facing. We need these young people to lead us through it. Before you tell us how we get hold of the book, um, you've done a lot of gardening. In the last, <laughs> in, the, in the last six months, I'm golfing so. with you. <laughs> golfing, <laughs> <laughs> but um, what is Hugo culture? Yes, it's very good. Well, Peter, you're sitting here, and you can actually see the raised beds that we've got out in the garden. In in the process of writing, we all look for metaphors, something that would help tie these ideas together, and. And I had um, a builder called Rob. Uh, I mean, I've actually got a builder called Bob the Builder. And, and he's been a great friend of ours. Um, we've known him for about 10 years. And, and I said to Rob, I'd like some raised beds. You know, I'm getting on a bit. I don't want to be bending over. And he said, OK, I can build you them. We've got the sleepers, we put it in. And then I thought, good God, this is going to cost a fortune to fill this up with topsoil and manure and all the stuff that you have to do. And in truth, what happens? It with with raised bed gardening is that you fill it with a load of rubble and then you put the grown median on top and I came across this concept of Hugo culture which is a German approach which says let's fill the bottom of our raised beds with bulky organic matter tree roots things that you know will over time decompose and they will then release the nutrients that the soil needs to offer and I suddenly thought, yes, that's the metaphor I need for this book because I was the leader in an organization who thought everybody looked to me for the ideas. So I was the equivalent of sprinkling the fertilizer, the bone meal on top of the soil and hoping enough of it went down to make it work. What I should have been as a leader is thinking, how can we create the right kind of growing medium that these people will have their own ideas, they'll be fed from below, and the innovation that all organisations need will actually come from the bottom upwards. And, and so it just seemed to me to be a really beautiful metaphor. And as you can testify, my plants are doing really well with Hugo Culture. Absolutely. This <laughs> yeah. reminded me slightly now of the Peter Sellers character and being there. It became <laughs> yes. <laughs> but what was his name? Chaucy? Chaucy Dancer. Yeah. Anyway, no, I, it's, it's a great concept, Google Culture. So finally, Dave, thanks ever so much for talking to us. And uh, yeah, tell us about how we get hold of the book. Yeah, well, it's available on all uh, good booksellers, um, particularly Amazon. Um, and it's not available in bookshops, partly because bookshops are not really open right now. 
but people can get it if they just um, Google Power of Us by David Price it, it'll pop up great and finally I keep on saying finally but you've got another piece of music so to, to introduce to us so let's hear about that finally before we go yeah well this is um, an old favourite of mine um, and, and yes people could say you know I'm an old hippie um, because it goes back to a time uh, I think it was written during the 70s um, when there was a lot of political activism you know um, gay culture was, was finding its voice um, uh, we were concerned about sustainability um, it, it happens to be written by someone who I just think is one of the great artists of the, the 20th and 21st century Michael MacDonald who was in a group called the Doobie Brothers and it's called Taking It To The Streets but the reason why I wanted to include it um, right now is because I think we're we're seeing now a new kind of activism you only have to look at the success of movements like Extinction Rebellion Black Lives Matter the two largest public demonstrations in the history of our species have been organized by school kids and that's Greta Thunberg's crew and the kids from Parklands Florida who had that horrific mass shooting and then uh, got the whole world talking about gun control and so what we're seeing is there's a there's a level of success with these movements which we didn't see with people like Occupy they weren't focused enough and I just think that um, you know the success of Black Lives Matter in terms of actually bringing equity to to the core of American discourse is huge and uh, and and so I think we are seeing, you know, uh, and in education, I just look at the most recent example was that what's being classed as the exams fiasco, and frankly, I don't think that this mutant algorithm that Boris Johnson talked about, which screwed up everybody's exam results, I don't think they'd have backed down on that had it not been for hundreds of thousands of young people taken to the streets and saying no. We didn't do 12 years of education for some algorithm to determine what makes it successful. And, and they did back down. And, and the success rate of these mass movements is uh, of, a, of a level that we've never seen before.
Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Quando eu canto e a chuva cai. So thank you so much to Dave Price, David Price, OBE, for um, for joining us on Love the Words, talking about his new book, The Power of Us, which I heartily recommend. Um, next week on Love the Words, Tuesday, 5.30, as ever, I'll be talking to the educator and artist Eleanor Snare, based in Leeds, doing some really interesting work. Um about Root and Branch, her new, well, kind of education program, really, but online, very imaginative approach to um, self-development, personal development, artistic development. Lots of interesting things in the pipeline. Our new development of Chapel FM, as we've been doing building works for the last uh, three or four months, very soon we can get in there at least staff can the team can to have a look at this wonderful new building really looking forward to it and then when circumstances permit we will be uh, we will be welcoming people into our new space uh, with open arms it will be great so in the meantime let's hear from Anna and Elizabeth to take us out of love the words for this week is walking Walking and singing, all men is walking, walking and watching the line or the circle, the ships or their passing, the fog or its drifting, rising or falling by the shore, by the shore. Oh